0: Welcome to another episode of the Non Therap Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Chura. Today is very special to me because I have my friend Brian Reiltz in the house, and we're going to talk about his recovery, his recovery from alcoholism. I focus on recovery because that is what's most important in this piece, as we have all found ourselves at different points in our lives in non-ideal situations, either picking up bad habits or leading us down a bad life path. So whether or not you suffer from alcoholism, there is certainly something to be taken from this episode, and that is my driver for this podcast, is to help each one of us, including myself, constantly strive to be better, and it's an ongoing thing, and the parallels we talk about today apply to everyone at some level. I've known Brian for almost two years now, and what's impressed me the most and continues to impress me is that he has had the courage to admit things were out of his control. He's had the courage to seek treatment and has the courage today to share his story with you. And when you hear the story and hear what Brian has achieved now in his life, I think it is pretty remarkable. Now, I'm going to set the scene for you. Brian is sitting in his living room one morning with a bottle of vodka. This is 8 a.m., He's been drinking it for the last hour, and he has an appointment to get to. So, against his better judgment, he gets behind the wheel with the bottle of vodka next to him in the car. And if you're watching or listening to my words, you can see this movie unfold in your head, and you may have guessed what happens next. He gets pulled over and is arrested for a DUI. Brian and I are going to start our conversation talking about this dark moment. This is his bottom and how he knew he was hurting those around him and, of course, himself. What he was going through that morning, how he contemplated committing suicide, but more importantly, how he was able to take those first steps to begin his journey towards recovery.
1: Yeah, so um, that morning uh, is one that I will never forget. And, you know, I was very angry for a long time, but I can remember it as clear as day. Um, you know, it was eight in the morning or so, um, bottle of vodka literally in my hand, uh, blue skies, you know, four days after the 4th of July should be really happy, celebrating life. And, um, and I wasn't, and, you know, next thing, you know, um, I'm, I'm behind bars. Honestly, I'm behind bars. Uh, and it's hard for me to say, you know, but it's true. And that's probably the safest place I could have been at that moment.
0: You get arrested. Now you're in jail. What are you thinking in your mind at that point?
1: Yeah, it's you know it's like the famous song. Uh, how did I get here? This is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful car. Um, wh- what is going on? There was a lot of anger. Uh, there was a lot of fear. There was um, a lot of concern of what's next, what's going to happen. Um, uh, how did I get here? You know, how did this get so bad? and um, a lot of disgust in myself.
0: Brian, I'm so sorry that you were feeling that way. What happened next with your wife?
1: Yeah, so at that moment, um, she wasn't very pleased with me, as uh, rightfully so. Um, I had called uh, my business partners and they had helped me out to get out of jail. so I didn't spend much time there, and uh, you know, from from there on, it, it, we were kind of dark. I was reaching out to her, reaching out to her, and she just wasn't ready to talk to me at the moment. You know, she was very, very upset, and and like I said, rightfully so. Um, and I couldn't, I couldn't catch on. You know, uh, so. From then, that day, rolled into the next where I had signed myself into a hospital that uh, uh, she coincidentally works at, and um, that's when I saw her. Um, I was in the ER. I had explained that I needed help. Um, They had me down, and she came down to see me, and basically, you know, took all my codes, everything, my cards, and... And was like, you need to go do your thing, and I'm going to take care of the kids, and I will talk to you later.
0: So that had to be a completely surreal experience for you. Do you recall what that moment was like?
1: Um, yeah, you know, at that moment, I had, I, was in, I was a shell of a human being. You know, I, I was crying. I was upset. I was not mad at her by any means. Um, I knew she had all the right intentions. And honestly, I just felt like I deserved it. Um, I felt like my life was over. Like, this this party is over. You've lived a great life. And you have thrown it down the drain. Um, and whatever happens next, happens next, but you probably are going to lose your family and your life, um, your business, all that stuff. And I didn't see much hope at the time.
0: Had you been drinking for a long time up until that point and it just got out of control?
1: Yeah, yeah, so, um, you know, social drinker uh, through college, um, restaurant industry, as I say, they're like pirate ships, you know, it's it's socially acceptable. And, you know, I, I say that, but I also, in, in 2020 hindsight, right, looking back as a leader, I shouldn't have been doing what I was doing with, uh, you know, drinking with staff and things like that. Um, but, you know, I, I really feel as if the the stepping stone was after my mother passed away. My mother passed away 17 years ago and I didn't have anything to turn to. I didn't, I grew up a religious man, but I didn't have any spirituality inside of me. And so I would put my head down, run with the ball. And if I had a problem, I would, you know, I would drink my way through it and then forget about it and move on. Um, And that's kind of how I dealt with life and, it just progressively, you know, snuck up on me without me knowing.
0: So it started off as you casually drinking Mm. and then you're drinking more at work. Were you finding yourself going toward alcohol because of stress or was it habitual? What was the main reason that you would, you would grab a drink?
1: Um, You know, I would, I would grab a drink. Uh, I always, I enjoyed it socially, um, and uh, I had a lot of fun. I like to believe I was fun to be around for you know, the most part until probably the end, I wasn't so much the fun to be around. Um, but, you know, if, if habitually, yeah, you know, if uh, football game's on, yeah, you know, might as well have a beer, right? Um, we're going out for dinner, uh, yeah, I'm gonna grab a martini before we sit down. Then we're gonna have some wine. You know, it seems pretty common and normal to me, honestly. You know, coming from the business that I've been in, and I grew up in the restaurant industry and hospitality. So, this that was normal. Like five o'clock in our house, it was like cheese and crackers on the table. Um, you know, my mom's having a Captain and Coke, and my dad's having a, a cocktail as well. And so that, it was just like, if you think about it you, from the environmental effect, I grew up with that and
0: uh, it's, that's just, it was normal. So let's walk back to when you started as an entrepreneur in the restaurant industry to set this up a little bit. So you were, you had your first restaurant at what age? Um, I secured my first restaurant at 29, uh,
1: so yeah, it was great. Uh, I had got married, had our first child, and opened a restaurant all within the same year. There was no pressure at all.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and at that point, alcohol was just casual enjoyment, yeah. right? There was no signs yeah. of of anything. No. So then the so then the business was pretty successful right and, and I know you yeah. had opened other restaurants as well when did that occur how, how long did it take you to ramp up the first one
1: um so after we opened the first one we ended up opening two simultaneously um within the next uh I think 14 months um and you know once again no pressure right <laughs> I was I have some business partners are great people and um I was always the one that they were like should we do it what do you think I don't know this seems like a big challenge I'm like let's go for it you know and I still kind of have that attitude of like well I'm in um and that's probably why half the reason why I got myself into trouble (laughs) but yeah we we just started accelerating and uh we moved started moving at a rapid pace um and we were successful it's they're still successful
0: so so then were you finding yourself as the business was growing and being successful, drinking more and more habitually, or was it to manage stress, or what was the main catalyst there?
1: So what I would say to you about that is um, restaurants are built a certain way, and um, the back of the house isn't, you know, there's a saying called asses and seats, you know, pay bills, right? So limited space in the back of the house and my office was also a liquor room for most of my life and Mm -hmm. you know so very casual still you know it would be like yeah you know how about we have a drink or whatever else you know or we had amazing cocktail bars with these mixologists would make these mind-blowing drinks and they'd be like can you taste this can you taste that so it was just part of a daily routine honestly it wasn't like grabbing a bottle off the shelf and and just start drinking like that that wasn't the situation it was just it honestly it, it was seemed normal like we were just tasting stuff and moving along we had a whiskey bar still have we have a whiskey bar and with multiple barrels under our name and so we'd do tastings all the time of whiskey or we were changing wine lists and tasting all the time. So drinking was just kind of, it seems, you know, as part of the job. Right, it's part but of the
0: job. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, and I think a lot of restaurant people would would agree with that. And it's a problem in the restaurant industry. I'm, I know it's in other industries as well, but when it's in your face all the time um, and it's. You know, it just becomes one of those things like you finish a great shift in a hot kitchen that's 130 degrees or whatever, an ice cold beer sounds good, right? Uh, you reward your staff. I like to consider myself, you know, a cook more than a chef, and I'd reward the staff and I'd have a beer with them. Or, you know, one turns into two, two turns into three. I've never had a beer, right? <laughs> I don't know somebody that ever had a beer.
0: So you're 29 when you start the first restaurant. Other restaurants pop up, or you create, I should say, in your early 30s, so like 30, 31, you're mm. casually drinking. At what age, then, do you realize, like, you may have a problem, or or the first thing happens, and maybe you're ignorant to the problem still?
1: Yeah, I was very ignorant to it, as, as an excellent word um, probably around 37 is when it hit um and i was like i've you know i'm trying to i I looked in the mirror i was like i'm completely out of shape um or probably 36 i think 36 is is more accurate number you know it's like i'm completely out of shape i need to get in shape i used to be super fit when i was younger and i love that lifestyle and i'm like i'm drinking too much and i'm not training at all or working out as I called it back then and I was like I, I need a lifestyle shift so probably around 36 you know we had uh, at that time um, nine restaurants so we had, we had been pushing you know um, from all cylinders and it, it just I, I, it was that look in the mirror and it was like yeah I need to stop and I would stop for say a week or ten days, and and then I would you know as as the story goes, you you go back to it, and it's just a little bit worse, and then it just gets a little bit worse, um, and that's that's probably when it happened, you know, I had that final year before I went down. So,
0: so was it? Did you when you say it gets worse? Was there any? Was there ever an incident before the morning of? either at work or with the law or with your, your family that you may have realized like, Hey, this is a problem and this has gone too far outside of you, obviously looking in the mirror and saying, I'm out of shape.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, never with the law, um, never at work. Um, you know, I felt like I was pulling my weight there. Um, so I felt like I was, you know, okay by it then. Uh, but at home, uh, I wasn't showing up for my family. That's for sure. I mean, I was I was putting in over 100 hours a week, um, and you know, I just I would have conversations with my wife, and she'd be like, "You need to stop, or you need to, you're drinking too much, or whatever it may be," and I'd say, "Yeah, you're right," and I, like I would stop for a little bit, but then something inside me would tell me it's, it's okay to keep, you know, you can, you can have another one. Um, and it's it's that disease of the mind.
0: How would others have been able to recognize that you, you did have an issue though? It seems like it was pretty subtle or subdued.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, um, people with addiction issues are masters of manipulation. Um, they become very secretive they hide things um, and they're just it's a living a dual life it's a dishonest lifestyle that you're leading um, and those that know you best can see right through it you know like Lara my wife she she could see right through it um, and so she would call me on it um, my sisters don't live near me but You know, when they'd see me, they'd they'd be like, he changed what's what's going on. And they could see through the BS. Um, And that's it. It's like it's really knowing somebody and and knowing it's and watching them change. You know, it's not really the physical change. It's more of the mental change, their mind shift um, that really shows up. Their subconscious just takes over.
0: And when did it go from this the casual drinking to drinking early in the morning? Like to me, that feels like a telltale sign. When you wake up and you're finishing a bottle of vodka at eight a.m., then you know. Like um, at least from from my perception and, and my knowledge, I mean that's obviously um, you know a huge red flag. How did it? How did it go from casual to that?
1: Yeah, I mean. A drink at, at the end of your shift in the evening turns to a celebratory shot after a busy push in the, in the kitchen, and it slowly just starts creeping down that clock, and you're like, oh, I'm never going to have a drink before 3 o'clock. And then you find yourself on a beach somewhere, right? And you're like, oh, sure, I'll have a margarita or whatever. Yeah, it's 5 o'clock yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. exactly, right? <laughs> and, um, and that hour just keeps clicking down. And then you're like, I'll never drink before noon. And next thing you know, it happens. And it just slowly gets there. And then, and then you're there one day. And you're like, this is not right. You know it. You absolutely know it. And at that, it, it's it's so far gone at that point because it's not in your control. It, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a disease. Honestly, it's a threefold disease uh, addiction, and it it needs to be acknowledged more in society because there's a lot of problems, but. You, you don't, your body becomes dependent on it. You know, you can't physically function without it. You can't mentally function without it. Um, you know, you can't think straight. And so you have some and it kind of brings you back to a, a new norm, right? Whatever your, your norm is shifting downhill, but you need to get back onto that hill to your new norm so you feel okay. Um, and that lies the problem, you know, cause that just keeps dropping, dropping, dropping. And I know I'm so blessed and graced that, that I, I that I was able to, you know, get caught off when I did. And
0: yeah, and I want to go, I want to go back there now. So now you're back. Uh, now going back to the story, you're, you're you get out of jail, you check in, Uh, Or you go to the hospital, you tell them you need help. So, your wife, I didn't even know your wife worked there. That that had to be surreal. From there, what happens? Where do you go to next?
1: So, you know, I I give a lot of credit to my faith um, nowadays. Uh, One of the regulars from my restaurant, one of my restaurants, um, was actually the ER doc at the time. And this, you can't even make this stuff up. He was the ER doc, and he looks behind the curtain. He's like, Brian? And I'm like, I say his name, and he's like, what are you doing here? And I literally just fell out of the bed crying, and he picks me up, and I kind of explain what's going on. He puts me in the bed, and he's like, okay, listen, there's two ways we can do this here. Either way, he's going to stay with you and I. I can either be your friend or your doctor, um, but I'm here to help you. And I was like, I need a doctor. I need a doctor. And he's like, I got you. And that was the first time I asked for help. And that is a key, key component of all of this, the asking for help. I was always, ashamed. it's a shame thing or whatever, you know, living a life where it's like, uh, uh, masculinity, or whatever it is, you know, women are just right. as guilty. It's like the, nobody asks for help, especially at those executive levels, right? Where you should be asking for more help. But uh, that was my first ask for help. And
0: from, you know. And then, so, so what did, he, what was the help? What did he do?
1: So, yeah, he, um, he stabilized me. Um, and that is actually when my wife came down after I got stabilized. I saw her for a brief second, um, and then she disappeared. And before I knew it, I was being taken to, uh, a psychiatric ward to detox. And I spent a week there and it was, it was literally the scariest week of my life. And it was exactly what I needed. Um, it was not a welcoming environment by any means. Um, but I was also used to getting what I wanted, what I wanted, you know. In flashback, three months before, then I was having high tea at the top of the Ritz-Carlton in Hong Kong. You know, now I'm in a, a room where I have to ask to use the bathroom and somebody's going to watch me. You know, that's not glamorous.
0: What did you observe there what, in terms of the other, the other folks there that, that were in there? Were, did they have similar stories or was it completely different
1: so it was it was a real hodgepodge of human beings in there (laughs) (laughs) it was there were people with very very serious illnesses mental illnesses um that were just there to being kept there to stay alive you know um and it's really sad when i think back about it how how bad they were hurting um and age ranges from anywhere from 16 to, you know, a 70 year old man um, and people with drug addictions. There were few alcoholics and stuff like that, but just people that were not safe on the streets, they were better off in, in, a, in a lockdown facility um, and I needed to spend a little bit of time there and, you know, and it's like you're trying to contact family members and You know, I think, I forget who says it, but you ever have shoes without shoelaces? I have. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, there's a reason behind that. You know, there's a reason the phone cord is only this long, you know, uh, like six inches, because it's just a dangerous environment. Um, So I saw a lot of stuff that, honestly, nobody should have to see, you know, people being chased down and, you know, for their own good to, to save them. So I was happy to leave that facility. Uh, that was grateful. How did,
0: I can't imagine the feeling you had when waking up. So your, your body's detoxing itself, right? Cause there's no way they're allowing anything in there. And you probably have this feeling that your family is at le- at the very least, extremely, extremely upset with you and you're at risk of losing them. Yeah. Take me back to like your mindset then. Like you wake up in the morning where you're like, this is just one big nightmare. Is this real?
1: Um, Oh yeah. I, I, I could not believe it was actually my reality. I'm like nobody on the outside world of this facility wants to speak to me. Nobody wants me in their life right now that knows what's going on. And, um, I just felt completely worthless, completely worthless. Um, Like this, this, you know, for me, I'm like, this is it. It, The party's over, you know, Uh, and I don't know where I go from here, but I know my past is most likely over. And um, I didn't know how to communicate with people. I didn't, you know, I was in a room in in a facility with a room that, you know, with a man that I I, I was afraid to sleep next to. <laughs> like,
0: so you had, you had a roommate, you were in like a, like a dorm room.
1: Yeah, exactly. So we're in a, we're in a dorm setting. It was a lockdown facility. Uh, they check, they come in with a flashlight every 15 minutes and check to make sure that you're okay. Um, so you're not sleeping and you're not sleeping either because you're detoxing. Um, uh, the the good thing is like when you detox in an environment like that, as opposed to at home, which I would never recommend to anybody because it's super dangerous. Um, in an environment like that, they can help stabilize you, you know, help with your heart and help with everything else, um, because it it is so dangerous to come right off a substance. Um, and thank God I wasn't on anything else either. But there were a lot of, a lot of people on other stuff that were really in a lot of pain and the guy next to me (laughs) i'll never forget it he was just he was just shaken and he was in so much pain and i i was like hey can i get you some crackers and water or anything and he just looked at me and said no (laughs) and and i was like okay that's gonna be our relationship (laughs) you know uh so, you know, it was one thing after the next and you you meet people in there and you realize yeah, maybe in my life everybody is super mad and maybe my life is has come to to the pits, but there are people in here with a lot worse problems, a lot worse things going on and you can you can relate in different ways, you know. Um so you start you're really in the mud, and you start you start thinking from that angle. You know, that's where I started thinking from the mud.
0: Yeah, I actually can relate to that. I I had a, not from alcohol, but I went to a behavioral um, psychiatric hospital. Like in my early 20s, right after I started working at Ford, the catalyst was I just had my daughter, her mom and me broke up. And at at that point, I was just hit severe depression. Like I just had a kid. I didn't want to be in this place. I watched my parents go through divorce and I checked in for help. And what I realized, Brian, like to your point is the problems I had were I don't want to say minuscule, but they were far less complex than others. And my greatest gift was being able to find myself in a position where I was growing from helping those other people. And Mm -hmm. this was back in the day where, you know, I just remember the the two people in there, and there's probably five in this group, and one person had been diagnosed with HIV and was going mm-hmm. through that. i never met anyone at that moment in my life that was going through that.
1: Mm-hmm. And I
0: felt myself as becoming a friend to that person and talking them through it. Another person, um, it was a lady, her husband shot himself in front of her after a dispute. And I was like, just looking at myself. Again, I think problems are all relative, right? Like, like my problem could have been to me as big as those other ones, but what i realized is it wasn't and and it helped me get through it by talking with with, with those people and um, so i can totally relate to where you're coming from when you look at that in context to say i was having high tea 3 months ago but also for you it was just a dr- such a dramatic difference is that like you're like almost literally on top of the world <laughs> right yeah uh, i know i know and then and then now you're now you're there so i guess going back to that how long were you were you in there for? So it was, it was a psychiatric, ward initially, mm-hmm. um, that had a detox component to it. What was that duration?
1: So I was in there for a week and what I'll touch upon real fast, what, you know, you just shared a really powerful point, uh, about the people you meet and helping other people. Um, And that's kind of what it was. It was like, can I help my roommate get crackers? No, that didn't work out. Well, there's other people I can help, you know. Somebody that's twice my size, um, you get a meal ticket and that person's starving. I'm like, dude, you can have my my grilled cheese or whatever it was, you know. Just those little simple acts or what really, really drives home for me before I go to the next part real fast is there was a girl there who was 16 and I've never I've never still to felt so bad for somebody and she grew up you know being assaulted by her father her uncles um, she turned out to be a heroin addict I mean she was 16 years old and this girl it was so broken down and she would just make these bracelets in the hallway and I remember one afternoon I just sat down next to her and I introduced myself, and and I was like, I, "Your bracelets are beautiful. Can you teach me how to make one?" And by me asking her how to make one, I think just took her out of her own head for you know maybe those fifteen twenty minutes, and it made her smile, and and that was just a big thing, you know. Uh, so you you go through those environments, but
0: yeah, that's you know, a good point.
1: Yeah, from there I went to a facility um, in the middle of nowhere up in uh, New Hampshire uh, for 35 days um, in treatment, you know, in inpatient facility uh, where I really learned the Big Book, um, and I realized
0: that alcoholism. Wait, wait is, what's the Big Book?
1: So the the Big Book is the um, is the 12-step program for alcoholics. Uh, for Alcoholics Anonymous, and the thing behind it that I, I realized when I was there, I learned a lot, but I learned how much history of alcoholism there was in my family, um, and that this was a big catch point for me, you know, like, I have been given a chance now, and I started studying, started learning the these things, I started reading this book, and they, they, one of the counselors told me, he said, just read the book um, and tell me what you think. I start, And bring a highlighter and highlight anything that you can associate with. And so I, I opened it up. And as I'm reading, I'm like, wow, that's crazy. And the book was written in the 1930s. And, um, and I just the start, book I, called
0: I, Is the book called 12 Steps? It's called... It's the big book. It's called the big book. Yeah.
1: yeah okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, and... You know, the, the 12 steps are in there. And the first step is admitting you're powerless over a substance, you know. And when it was written in the 30s, it was alcohol. Nowadays, uh, it can be associated to anything, you know. Um, and there's actually... Uh, I would recommend to anybody that's new to the game, that's looking to get help, uh, Russell Brand has uh, a book on overcoming addiction and he has an audio version that's fantastic and he starts out by you know step one is admitting that you're powerless and his step one is like just admit that you're fucked (laughs) (laughs) you know your life is completely fucked (laughs) and so it's it has some humor and it's i think it's great for the the next generation uh for people uh to learn from so, yeah, I spent 35 days there, and then um, I wasn't ready to come home. I still had a lot to learn, um, and my family had a lot to learn also, and, you know, things just weren't lining up quite yet, you know. Uh, we, we had a lot to figure out how we were going to move forward. Um, and even to that point, I wasn't sure if we still were, but, um, you know, I give thanks to God that my wife supported me and stayed with me and, and wrote, wrote out the storm, so to speak. So I went from there to their 90 day inpatient or halfway house to live there, um, to just get more help. Right. I was like, I was in that mode of, I need more help. I need more help before I can go back to civilization. Cause I'm not sure what civilization is going to look like.
0: What made you realize that you needed more help? Cause I could see a lot of people after now what is it like 45 days or so you're you've been sober you're learning at that point just though weren't you itching to get back to like normal life like how did you know you needed more help
1: um yeah you are dude you're absolutely correct like people itch to get out of there people don't last um they just want to get out of there they don't want to be told what time to get up they don't want to be told when to eat they don't want to be told to read when did that they need to journal that they need to do all these things so they are just itching and scratching to get out of the door and to me that is i think the difference is they just have not hit rock bottom yet in that whatever their rock bottom is they have not hit that yet and for me i had hit the bottom of the earth for me and I just knew if I was going to go back and be a better man and be a better husband, a better leader in this world, a better father, especially, I needed to get as much help as possible. I wanted to use every resource. I was in a fantastic program and and it wasn't no cook, like uh, glamorous program with acupuncture and you know, a view that you have in your background right now. We, it, was, it was down and dirty. Um, and that's exactly what I needed. You know, it was to be taken completely out of my comfort zone. You know, it's the expression of get comfortable being uncomfortable. And that was the real first time I had to experience that. And to to get through that um, and to stay in that environment for a certain amount of time, um... It just, it changes you. It changes your perspective on life. It changes your, the value you have, your your core principles on what, what's really important, you know. Um, and in order, it's the old saying, like, if you're on an airplane, you can't help the child next to you until you put your mask on first. You need to get yourself better before you can help anybody. Um, so... I was in a position where say say I'm on a boat, if somebody was throwing me a life jacket, it didn't matter to me what color jacket that was. I was putting it on and yeah. saving and saving myself to move back to move to the next step.
0: Was there a large difference between Detox the treatment center and then the halfway house?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. The the uh, you know, the first facility was was about detoxing and and just keeping you alive and safe, you know, from harming yourself, really. Um, and then it became a, a learning lesson. You know, when I was in, when I moved to the treatment facility, it was a real study and it was a very structured schedule, um, which helped to, you know, instill discipline back in my life. Um, and then at the halfway house, it had that same, it actually had even stricter discipline um there and, and at the halfway house is about 65 guys you know four bathrooms the house is falling apart um we would have meetings every day at one o'clock that were accountability meetings and it's the old joke that everybody wants accountability in life until you get it you know and we were held accountable for each other and each other's actions throughout the day um you know we had we had the freedom to go out into the town, and we were supposed to get part-time jobs and stuff, or whatever. And um, I have talk about giving back, right? I worked at a soup kitchen. How how fortunate is this? I got to work at a soup kitchen. They got to get a, a, a an executive chef to come in and and basically cook all the meals for a couple months, uh, and organize their menus. And I would feed the homeless. And it just gave me a new perspective. Like I was feeding in restaurants constantly. I love to serve. But now I'm feeding people so that they can stay alive. Yeah. And, and every day it was like playing that game chopped. Honestly, I'd walk in and they'd be like, okay, you have spinach, you have canned chicken, you have watermelon, and you have um, tomatoes from the garden down the street. Go. We need, a, we need an appetizer, an entree, and some sort of dessert with no sugar and no salt. I'm like, oh, yeah, all right, let's do this. Um, so it, it helped with my mind, you know, get creative again, get those creative juices flowing, um, became friends with these people that live on the streets, heard some unreal stories, you know, um, and once again, it's, you know, it, it was like a little family there that, uh, that I cultivated.
0: That is truly incredible, Brian. I could picture a lot of this in my mind. What are some of the observations that that you made with other folks? Were they relapsing back to their normal routines? Did you ever have any issues with that? Um, Yeah, unfortunately, you know, the success rate is not high. Um, I believe
1: it's under 10% success rate that people stay sober. Um, I'm over four years sober now. Um, I have no desire to go back to to the dark side at all. I have no problem being around things, around alcohol, around you know, I love going I went to Nashville for my best friend's bachelor party five months after I got out of treatment. Wow. Everybody thought it was insane and I had the best time of my life, you know. Um, because I, I just I've been given a gift um uh, of this second chance. Um but you know, mm-hmm. I'll put it to you this way out of the ten people I became close with through that process eight of them are dead you know one of them is sober and one of them is on the run using again and and i became great friends with these people and just to watch people die 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 and that was a, that's what it breaks down to people either die they end up behind bars or they get clean and it that is a that is a real life situation um and, it, you know, especially with what just happened, what's going on with COVID right now. There are so many undiscovered cases out there that people that need help, I'm sure. I'm positive of it. I know people. Um, it's there needs to be a push.
0: That is why this podcast is going to be called Against All Odds, because that is just an incredible story, how you overcame those odds, Brian. I give you so much credit. I do have a question while we wrap up this side of it. What was it then like leaving the halfway house?
1: Sure. So um, I moved home, moved back home, um, and it was a very big adjustment period for my family and I. Um, and, you know, to be completely honest, it still is today. It's a work on it every day. It's a work in progress. And it was, it was very difficult for everybody out of the gate. You know, I hadn't been around for five months, my wife had to manage everything uh, while working and having two children. Um, you know, it that is not easy, and so we had to we had to get. You know, I was getting uh, medical help. I was seeing you know a psychiatrist. I I still do, um, which is I think is important to acknowledge that their their value. Um, um, and it's just been a slow, slow, slow road. And then about a year and a half ago, it took off. It took off. I I started surrounding myself with like-minded individuals. It was right around the time I met you and something clicked, something happened. I had a conversation with my wife. It was my birthday and you know she hands me a stack of books and we had this long conversation and the next day i woke up and something clicked and all of a sudden i felt this motivation inside of me and i cannot explain where it came from but i felt a motivation to really get up and get going because up until that point i had been i i suffer from depression and i don't suffer anymore really but you know for per se um I managed my depression, Um, but I was suffering for a long time and that that did nothing positive for my family either to watch this person that's supposed to be coming home and that's your father, that's your husband, right? And that's your brother. Uh, But I was useless for a while, for a long time, and I just put on weight. So, I mean, I got up to 280 pounds. And I was usually wow. floating around two fifteen. Um, and this
0: was like two years ago, ish. Yeah, and exactly.
1: Wow. Yeah, really? and so I got up to two eighty. You know, depressed, eating, like crying, eating pints of ice cream in parking lots, like, like a bad daytime movie was <laughs> what I was actually living. Um, and it, you know, I just did not have a will to live like i could this is
0: after you got back you went through all the program and everything right. so you're now back your family you feel like you're on a better track but you right. still are depressed because you're maybe you're thinking about what i put people through you're thinking about right. you know what's my future right. um, what's my reputation as a business person like all of those things just piling on you i can imagine it all those things
1: piling on me. And then, you know, it's something that I've now, I now know that I've dealt with my entire life. You know, it's this imposter syndrome uh, where you, you think you get somewhere, but you're told you're not good enough. Right? So every time you achieve a milestone, you just, all of a sudden you feel like I'm not worth it, you know? And that's something i I didn't realize growing up I didn't realize throughout my career, my career up to now um, that i have been dealing with that and it came to the forefront um that i I was just i just felt once again you know now I'm sober I'm not worried about drinking or anything like that I, I, but i just now I'm worried about myself because I just I can't even... Th- I can't think straight. I, nothing's making sense. And I'm just... I'm a log. You know, literally a log. And and then you, you. if you ask my wife, it's like, what are you doing? You know, like, you just spent all this time away. You should be good to go now. And I couldn't, couldn't put words to it. Yeah.
0: Um, it's really... So when you really say, a, so yeah, When you say you had that day and and you're like, I just had this day where everything turned around, like, what was the catalyst for it? Like, did you watch a Rocky movie the night before or have a dream? It was just like you woke up like there had to be something or or no.
1: Honestly, I had a, a conversation with my wife that was honest and from the heart and she's, she's like, I want you to get better. You know, you need to get better. This is not the person I married. This is not the father that our kids need. You're better than this. I don't know what's going on with you. And I don't know if you need to get more help or what. And like I said, she handed me some books and stuff. And that night I went to bed and I really had a spiritual awakening You know, when I say a spirituality, like, I consider spirituality different than religion because spirituality to me is, you know, going, somebody that goes through hell and does not want to go back, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, whereas, you know, the religions can be taken in so many different contexts. So I had a spiritual awakening that, and I woke up that next morning and, um, and I just started to move. Move my body, you know, and just started to, went for a walk. And one thing led to another. Um, and then I started training more. And I got into a program where I was training more and training more. And I was surrounded by positive, like-minded individuals. Um, and that's when I met you, you know. And, and I was, I just kind of got some wind under my sails, started, I had, started back on my disciplines. I was like, okay, I need to eat right. I need to sleep better. I need to, I'm gonna get up at 7 a.m. and I'm gonna train with this team, no matter what, no matter how I feel, I'm gonna do it. And I just stuck to it. And that discipline just became, turned into a drive. And before I knew it, I, I weighed myself and I had lost 40 pounds. And I was like, cause I'm putting on clothes that don't fit. And I'm like, geez, Louise! Like, wow! <laughs> yeah. And and you know, your physiology once you start going like that it starts changing your psychology, and so you're automatically starting to feel better. You know, my doctors are like, "What are you doing?" I'm, I tell them, "They're like, just don't stop." Right. <laughs> you know, and so I don't. I keep going, and then I start setting some goals, and um, before you know it, I lost 90 pounds. And I was like, I can't believe this. Like, uh, And I was, you know, I could find happiness. I could, um, I could have conversations with my kids. I started doing different meditations. Like that's a huge part of my day is breath work in the morning. I have these morning and evening rituals where I, I focus on breath work and meditation and gratitude. And really just being thankful for the things that I have. You know, saying in advance the things that I have, um, because they're not to be taken for granted, and I know it now for sure. You know, it's like one day, one life. You you only get one shot at this, and it just, it happens so fast um,
0: that yeah. What what I didn't realize is how fresh off of this you were when I met you. I had I had known you went through it, obviously from her. Our- First few conversations, but I didn't realize how recent it was. I thought it was. I thought there was a bigger gap. I guess is what I was saying. So, mm-hmm. the time I met you, yeah, you that you were just at the beginning of this journey, and that's that's inc- that's incredible. It's incredible.
1: Yeah, you got you got to witness virtually the whole thing, you know, um, and. And, and you know i'd say the same thing to you joe honestly like somebody like you you you're such an inspiration to me your story is so incredible and I, if your audience doesn't know it yet they should look into it because it's really remarkable and it's inspiring and i would hear you know stories like yours and other people and and be like i can do this you know mm-hmm. and and just slow incremental steps, right? Just try to be, you know, just try to be 1% better each day um, than you were the day before. And it doesn't always work, right? Um, but if you yeah. can just keep chipping away at it, just put one foot in front of the other, and, you know, you, you get out of those funks and then you can start really helping people um, because you feel better. And... You know, my relationships with my children are so much better. My relationship with my wife is probably the best it's ever been. Um, I, I, You know, it, it's from doing the work from every angle. And it's from them doing the work, too. Because let's not forget, when, when somebody goes down like that, they're the ones that pay the price. You know, the, it's the families and the loved ones of, of the person that really pay the ultimate price. And they have to... They're dealing with it, and um, that was a big contribution to my depression as well. You know, like, uh, and I just didn't know how to solve it. And, yeah.
0: So, I love the physiology helps with the psychology because I firmly believe that, and that's the premise of this show and and what I what I try and. Uh, when I try to get out of these conversations, right? Because mm-hmm. I've, I've seen that. And and I could say that it's it's an, it's an ongoing thing. You can't sail on yesterday's wind. You could easily gain all the way back or relapse or do everything that you don't want to do or reverse what you've became if you don't keep at it. So it's a continual process, hence not almost there, right? Because you're not, there's yeah. no there there. You're, just, you're no. just, it's a constant motion and you're, and the, what's crazy, Brian, is as you know, man, you have all these forces against you at all times. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's like your life's a headwind. It's almost like, like business, what I found when I was growing a business is all these things are out there and they all, not, not everything, but there's a lot that like hurt your chances of success whether that be Mm -hmm. governance or taxes or like, you know what I mean? Like, like what you don't realize is you're starting a business. And then at the end of the day, like the profitability that you barely made. And now you got to give half of that away, you know, for taxes. It's Mm -hmm. just like, like there's just a lot of, of headwinds in life, but you constantly have to go, go at it. Otherwise it'll, it, you'll be pushed back it's almost like this it's almost like wind or the ocean you know there's a current happening and if you don't fight against it you're you're gonna you're gonna be a, a victim of it for lack yeah. of other words
1: yeah and and you know something i say all the time is stay in the fight just stay in the fight you know um, and i think it all starts with in the morning and You know, your breath control, it's the chicken or the egg, right? If you're breathing out of control, your body's going to be out of control. Your mind's going to be out of control. But if you can learn to control that breath work, it's such a powerful thing. I mean, that's your number one source of energy in life is oxygen, right? So learn to control your breath and then you can learn to control other things and just slow down, you know, just slow it down and, and take take the steps and just keep going like stay in that fight you know never never take the gloves off is what somebody told me when I was in treatment they they were like they were like my uncle was a boxer he always told me never take the gloves off i was like you are that's spot on man and it's true um, because i can tell you examples of now where you know there there there's hard times all the time right as you just alluded to Uh, in different facets of life and if you can just fight your way through it somehow you know with kindness and be where your feet are you know um just have those crucial conversations with people and listen be an active listener those are all like just huge components that just make your life a little bit more simple and then and then you can really you know dial it up
0: how important is it, and I'm, this is kind of like a leading question into the next topic or segment that I want to get to, which is Kokoro, and we'll explain mm-hmm. what that is in a minute here, but how important is it to have a big goal, like a big, hairy, audacious goal to, <laughs> to keep your, you know, you going north or you going in the direction you want to go?
1: Oh, I think it's huge. You know, I think, I think goals, uh, dreams are dreams, but they just remain dreams unless you have goals and set markers along the line to achieve with them. You know, they'll just always stay in the clouds unless you can pinpoint areas of, you know, target areas to achieve. And, you know, one of mine was, as you just mentioned, Kokoro, and that's a really physical, mental... Crucible done by Seal Fit out in California. And it's a 50 plus hour crucible um, done by the Navy SEALs, uh, retired and some active Navy SEALs, where they basically put you through a simulated uh, hell week. And, um, you know, I just did that last weekend and it was absolutely incredible. It took me a year and a half to train for it.
0: Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, ever since I met you, you've been training for this. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and you know what? I went out and I did it. I, I
1: secured class 57, and I went out, and I, I attempted to do class 56, the class before, which was in March, um, and there were 15 of us that lined up to take it on, and it was freezing out, and the cold was just so, so, so such a it was its own enforcer right they could just get you wet and um and just make you stand there and and like i said i had lost all that weight so i think i was down to about six percent body fat and um i felt very confident going into it but it snuck up on me and after 30 some odd hours my body was just not functioning the way it should i was seeing double and you know, uh, I felt like my next evolution was going to be in the hospital. I was on on the verge of hypothermia. Um, so I had tapped out of that one, and I'm grateful I did because I came home, I learned from it, and something Unbeatable Mind has taught me is, you know, they don't come wins and losses, they're wins and lessons. And so it really wasn't a loss for me. It was like, what did I learn from that experience, um, and how can I apply it to train differently and to approach life differently because the first time it really absorbed a lot of real estate in my brain too. Um and the second time around I uh <laughs> I, I laugh about it, but I I tried to emulate best I could like Bradley Cooper training to be Chris Kyle for American Sniper. Yeah. Like he he had to gain twenty pounds in ten weeks. It was something wild like that. And I was like, if I'm going back to Gokoro, I need to put on weight because you burn about, I think, 55 to 60,000 calories during the crucible, which is a ridiculous amount. And they feed That's you and crazy. they hydrate you.
0: Yeah, but, yeah, it's just, it's
1: an absurd amount. So you need some some extra juice on you. Um, so, yeah, like I changed my whole program. Um, I was eating like a maniac, you know, like healthy, obviously, but uh, I ended up putting on fifteen pounds and went back. Meant there was forty-five people signed up. This is how it goes. Like there was forty-five people signed up for the event. Ten people paid and didn't even show up. Like like they just—it just, it just it sounds how good. intimidated yeah. it is like. Yeah. yeah, it's it's no. I mean, you can people can look it up, but it's it's one of the hardest civilian crucibles in the world. Like these are, these are Navy SEALs, the elite of the elite. That are going to ferret into your mind, find your weaknesses and get rid of them. you know have you get rid of them. Like they'll find them for you, point them out and so you can leave those weaknesses there um, and that maybe that is feeling less than, right? So for me, it was yeah. like not feeling like a good teammate or whatever it may be. And I'll lead that in situation into what happened was like 16 of us ended up finishing. You know, so there's your retention rate of how many people actually stick around. Um,
0: so less but than there half. Was, so 45 sign up, 10 people don't even show. There's 35, half of those finish, not even. Yeah,
1: yeah. Wow. You know, and that's and that's a big class that finishes. When I did the yeah. when it was the 15 of us, only six guys secured. You know, so yeah. it's like still less it, than half. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's no joke, and it's not to be taken lightly at all. Um, but so you have to be physically fit and you have to meet standards. Um, and then you can, and then you're good for that portion of it, but then it becomes this giant mental game. Uh, you have sleep deprivation, you know, you're, there's water, uh, appreciation, so to speak. Um, you're in the middle of the desert during the day, it's hundred degrees, you know, you burn your hand on the sand, constantly doing push-ups and all these, do thousands and thousands of push-ups and burpees and all that stuff. And you, you learn so much from these people and how to be a better teammate, leader, and how to learn to lead, and how to learn when it's time to follow. Um, and, and the best example I can give is there was a young lady there um, who we called Smurfette. Um, and she was, is a phenomenal crossfitter, like one of the best in the country. And she, we got to the pool and there was an evolution in the pool and she was like, I can't swim very well. And I'm like, all right, well I can, um, I love the water. So we did this, this one thing where we were treading water for a certain amount of time, um, that can be uncomfortable and she was hanging on. She was in tears. She was afraid she was going to drown. She had a bad experience as a child with it. And I was like, just put your hand on my shoulder. I got you. You're not leaving. Because like, if you go over and touch the side of the pool, the cadre is going to be like, come on out. You give up. You know, And it's about that no quit. Like You just have to mm-hmm. push through and find that next level inside of you. So me helping her in that moment and then another teammate of mine came over and he's like, I got you on the other side. And she, it was, so she was holding on to both of us. You know, she gets through that evolution and we're like, way to go. You got it done. And next thing you know, it was like somebody put a rocket packet on her back because she just went wham and took off. And became literally became the leader of our crew for the next I don't know thirty something hours, you know. It was like we were doing log PT, and she's leading everybody in log PT. These are three hundred some odd pound logs you're putting over your head, and there's this, like five foot two girl maybe, if, you know, if she's wearing heels, <laughs> and yeah, and she's just crushing it, you know. And it's just like it's crazy that power of of helping someone and then watching them explode. It's, it's kind of like my story where you go to that deep, dark part and then once you can turn out of it, things just start to explode. And that's just the way life is going now. And it's, and you know, I want to continue my discipline, my drive and determination that I was able to display there and take it into the next realm of my life and be of better service to people, you know? Um, just be an all around better person.
0: Yeah. And what's great about the story, too, is you replaced your addiction with another addiction, but it was yeah. a healthy addiction. And I think that's important, too. You don't need to have this hole. And I think maybe that's, you know, now hearing the story again, it just dawns on me like you had this void, and maybe that was the cause of your depression. You filled it with exercise and was working toward this huge goal. And the, crazy thing now as I think about your story holistically and it's you've taken what you've learned and asking for help and working with others to be a better teammate to get you through something like a coro. So it's it, right. in a weird way, they're fairly parallel just they're both, they both have to do with teams asking for help working together and overcoming this, you know, such a mental, um, such this incredible mental state that you have to put your mind into and get through. Right. Did you see or ever think back when you were training or going through this? Did you draw on that parallel at all? I did. Honestly, I, I did
1: uh, a little bit, but I really, after a week of kind of like foggy brain and trying to piece it back together is when it started to hit me. And, you know, Kokoro, is is Japanese for the heart my, the merging of the heart and the mind. And that's really what happens at the event is you get outside yourself, you stop it's not about you, it's about the person next to you, you know. And to use what you're saying right now, it's like I trained with people. I trained with a certain person that you know, we blood sweat and tears for a year and a half. And then we secure Kikora together and that's a bond that these are bonds like this the swimming pool girl This other girl. It's like there's guys that I went through with that. I knew These bonds can't be broken and I can't even put them into words How strong they are and that's the same thing with me in my personal life now like creating these bonds these new opportunities, right taking these obstacles that were in my way and turning them into these opportunities to be a better father, to be a better husband, right? Um, so that when my kids grow up, I want them to marry the best version of their father that they know, you know? I, mm-hmm. my father left me when my mother passed away. And so I didn't really have a male role model as far in in best, you know, say second half of my life or so. Um, and I think it's super important for all those things. Um, but just want to, you know, that, yeah, like you said, that balance or that, you know, that, uh, matrix between the two, it, it it is real and it's surreal. And the moments just keep coming up, you know, where it's like, wow, you do this, you can do anything. You do that, you, you know, you're unstoppable.
0: And you're going to take this momentum I know into your next venture. Do you want to tell the world what that is going to be and what you're doing now? <laughs> well, I'm gonna well, I'm gonna leave it as a little bit of a teaser for you, Joe. But okay. um, you know,
1: my goal and my purpose is to be of service to people. I want to see people reach uh, you know twenty times their potential, as they would say, in a beautiful mind. But I want people that are stuck in the rut. You know. And that are sitting in their situation, whether it's uh, diabetes, obesity, you know heart disease, mental illness, whatever it may be, how can I be of service to get them out of that zone and show them through my own examples, you know, And I'm not tr- I don't want to toot my own horn, but like, listen, if I can do this, I trust me, I know you can do it, you know and maybe it's at a different rate, maybe it's at a different pace. That's all good. We got you. You know, let's just figure it out one foot in front of the other and get them to a place of in prevention so they don't have to see the white tiled ceiling in, in a hospital, you know? They don't have to go through all that crap. Like you don't have to be in that mud. They might already be in their own muddy situation, but it doesn't have to get deeper you know, it really doesn't. And so, uh, trying to put something together along those lines. And, uh, I, I really hope, and I know, I don't hope, I know it will be a slam dunk and, you know, we're going to change lives, save, save lives. And, uh, we're going to have you be a guest speaker one day. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, it would be my pleasure. Uh, and yeah, I think that's, uh, it's very exciting to, to watch this next venture unfold. And, you know, I'm here to support it in any way possible. Um, you mentioned Unbeatable Appreciate Mind it. a few times. I just want to define what that is for, for the group here. So, Unbeatable Mind is was founded by Mark Devine, who's a former Navy SEAL commander and has uh, SEAL Fit, which I think it started with SEAL Fit, which was uh, an exercise program to min- to mimic some of the SEAL training. Uh, folks use that to train for these events like Kakoro, which Brian was talking about. And Unbeatable Mind was more the mental side of, of things. It incorporated fitness but it was a lot to do with the mental and breathing. And there's a website you can get access to called Unbeatable Mind. Uh, the group Brian and I were in was this cohort of, of uh, a few people that uh, it was a smaller peer group that was kind of studying I'd say Unbeatable Mind concepts and philosophy and we'd have we we're supposed to have more in more physical events, but because of COVID, they, they turned virtual. So got to know each other through that. But I highly encourage people to check that out too, especially if they want to understand the power of breath and mm-hmm. pausing and not reacting to things. It's taught me mm-hmm. a bunch in my life. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to further define that. Cause I know that that was really important to you and that, that helped yeah. give you you know some of your purpose back. I mean, that, that wasn't it, but that was a tool that you used for sure.
1: Absolutely. A thousand percent, you know, nothing but respect for that organization. And um, they definitely helped me find, um, organize and find, you know, my passion, my purpose and my principles and really what I stand for in life, you know, and what I don't stand for. Um, so... I give them a ton of credit. You got to do the work, but uh, they are—they are phenomenal at what they do. You know, if you want to learn from the best, um, that's a great place to go.
0: Yeah, well, I—I I appreciate you sharing your story today, and—and and I could say that you know, watching you, have, well, having met you for the first time last year. You were just uh, a, a beast by that point, meaning you're just <laughs> ripped in shape and the epitome of health. So to think that a year and a half before that, it wasn't the case, you were 80 pounds heavier, I, it just goes to show you, man, what's possible and the power of your why and just just knowing where you were and mentally and and having that conversation with your wife and that, that moment and for that to trigger all of the positive momentum that you've since been able to enjoy. And I know you're going to take that and do great things with this new business venture. Um, but, you know, credit to your, your wife, Laura and your family and, and, and you, man, for just pushing through your uh, unbelievable motivation to me. And I know anyone who's listening to this that's struggling with anything is going to get a lot out of it. So thank you for sharing, Brian.
1: Yeah, Joe, I appreciate you taking the time to listen to me and, and I hope your listeners uh, can grab something out of this. You know, um, if it's asking for help or, you know, seeing somebody that needs help or, you know, just just finding a discipline, whatever it may be. Or like you said, pausing to breathe before you say that thing that you probably shouldn't say that that ends up to be yeah. a bigger situation that doesn't need to be uh, whatever it is, you know. Uh just always, you know, take that deep breath and think about it. And then if it really needs to be said, say it and, um, you know, get out there, help somebody and, and you'll be re- rewarded. I promise you, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm here by the grace of God and the love of my family, especially my wife. And uh, I'm just forever grateful.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And. I'd I'd want to share how people can find you more, but I know you're not really much on social. So right. what I'll do is I'll, I will make sure I support the new venture when it comes out and the listeners that want to know more about you, they'll be able to find you that way. But you are, I think you are on Facebook. So I think they can I, look you up there.
1: Yeah, I, I'm on, I'm on Facebook and Instagram. They can look okay. me up. I, I you know I choose not to be on social um, yeah. for my own mental health standpoints so honestly. No, it's not
0: a bad thing. Yeah, my wife, yeah. my wife cut it <laughs> off, and I I, I told the story a bunch on the podcast, but she cut it off and she replaced that with like news, which I'm like, this is oh like, no, a <laughs> not, not ad here, honey. Oh. but it's yeah, it's it's pretty funny because now it's like she knows all the negative news and it fills her brain oh. versus like getting frustrated on social, but. Nonetheless, um, I, yeah, any, I, of, yeah.
1: any of your listeners can, uh, I'll, I'll obviously I'll check in through it now and, uh, anybody can hit me up, uh, you know, private message me for sure. Um, and I'm more than happy to help you. However, I can be of service. I am here. Uh, that is, you know, one of my purposes and passions in life. So.
0: All right, brother. Well, Hey, thanks for the time today. I I love you, man, and everything you're doing, and you're just a a great person. I'm so glad that you came into my life and now hopefully the listeners' lives as well.
1: Yeah, dude, love you too. I'm so blessed to be here, and I'm so proud of what you're doing, Joe. This is amazing. This uh, This is just the beginning, right? The best is yet to come.
0: First, I need to thank my friend Brian again for his bravery in sharing his story. It's hard to admit when we're struggling and even harder when we feel we might be letting others down in the process. I myself went through a re-examination with my relationship to alcohol when I completed Andy Frazella's 75 Heart Challenge, where you can either have alcohol, not even a drop, for 75 days. For me, if I have to be honest, that's probably the first time period since I was 17, I know under the age, but I had a bit of a crazy high school and college life that I went that long without drinking. And what I realized is how much it had been affecting my body, my heart, my mental um, aptitude, and just uh, a lot of things in my life um, seemed a lot clearer when I was abstaining from alcohol. And it's not like I was drinking during the day. I would have a beer or two at night, and I would look forward to it more than anything during the day as a way to relax from, uh, from a stressful day. And I'm thinking that we can all relate to some level But when I removed alcohol, the impact was almost instant. And whether or not alcohol is an issue for you, there's probably something that could be overeating, that could be smoking, the list goes on. But the reality is when you start to tackle these things and uh, start to abstain from them, you'll find yourself feeling a lot more clear. So... As we are on this journey of self-betterment, I hope you can take Brian's story and think about your relationship with whatever it is that is bothering you or something non-ideal in your life. Whether that be drinking too much or smoking, take a break and see how you feel. If this episode is calling to mind a friend that might be struggling, say something, do something, be the change you need. And for quick reference, I will include contact information in the show. For AA and other various organizations that are here to help. And remember, whatever you're suffering with, we are in this together. As you, me, we are not. Almost there.